This is lesson 10 in our uh, series on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It is the final lesson on 1st Thessalonians, and I've called this Paul's final words. My alternate title is What 1st Thessalonians is All About. Well, I want to talk to you about some last words that uh, I found on the internet when I was looking on the subject. Churchill, who felt like he could have prevented uh, the uh, Second World War, uh, but was uh, too compliant, uh, said this at his death, what a fool I've been. And uh, Somerset Mom, I, I kind of teeheed at this one, he said, uh, dying is a very dull and dreary affair. And my advice to you is to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. <laughs> and then there was the uh, man, James Rogers, who was a convicted murderer and was standing before the firing squad. And they asked him if he had a final request. And he said, why, yes, a bulletproof vest. <laughs> And this is for Charlie. This is a Civil War one. General John Sedgwick was a Union commander in the uh, American Civil War. And uh, he was standing on a parapet, uh, a balcony, overlooking the enemy lines. And somebody had warned him that perhaps he was too visible. And he said, they couldn't hit an elephant from this dist. <laughs> I love those. All right. Last words. They're important and they're telling. Now, I think you understand that these are not Paul's dying words, such as you'd find in, uh, in 2 Timothy, especially chapter 4. These are the final words of Paul's first epistle. And uh, as you know, probably as you practice in, in looking at a book to see whether it's worth reading, Many people will go to the last chapter of the book to see where the author is going, and then they'll decide based on that whether or not they want to go through the first chapters. So that's really true of, of this uh, closing of, of Paul's in 1 Thessalonians. If you think about the subject matter that he's dealing with, he really covers the whole turf of what 1 Thessalonians was, was all about. And you might, you might think that this is kind of winding down. For a preacher, this is not a good thing <laughs> to be dealing with a text where he's just sort of fizzling down and, and, you know, leaving the trailings of what he's been saying. It's not the sense that you get from this text a at all. Paul will tell us his primary purposes in writing the epistle. He will give us several final commands. And most interesting... Verse 27, the next to the last verse, has the strongest command in all of the epistle. Very interesting that he saves, as it were, his strongest uh, shot for the very end of the epistle. So let's talk, first of all, about sanctification as Paul deals with it in verses 23 through 25. He prays in verse 23 for their sanctification. He says, Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on to say, he who calls you is trustworthy. He, in fact, will do this. Brothers and sisters, pray for us too. Now, we come to the body, soul, and spirit, and and here's one of the sad things that happens amongst evangelicals. They get caught up in, in, in some side issue rather than to follow the main thread and thrust of the text. So this is a battleground for those who have what, what's called a trichotomist versus a dichotomist view of man. Basically, the dichotomist view, too, is man is, is body and, and, and spirit or, or material and immaterial uh, parts. The trichotomous thing, I think, appeals to some because it, it, it may be, uh, it may appear to be an imitation of the Trinity. And since God is three, then somehow man has this, this stamp within him. And I gotta tell you, one, it's not a debate worth engaging in. And two, I just don't think it's so. I don't think Paul, that that's what Paul is trying to say, is somehow man has these three aspects to his being, and I'm gonna, I'll give you some reasons for that as we work our way down. First of all, when you look at the terms, in other words, if you were to do a concordance search on body, soul, spirit, you'd find this verse. Now, if you look on, for some of these words, look at the way in which they're, they're, they're used in such a diverse way that there's no uniformity. That's all I'm trying to say. If there were three parts of man, then you would expect to see that emphasized all through Scripture. It just isn't there in that sense. Heart, soul, and might is found, or strength, in Deuteronomy 6.5. Heart and soul is found in Deuteronomy 10.11. I think Joshua as well. Then you have heart, soul, and mind in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Heart, soul, mind, and strength in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Soul and body in Psalm 31, Isaiah 10, and Matthew 10:28. Soul and spirit, Hebrews 12, and Job 7:11 and Isaiah 26:9. Now here's the thing I want you to notice about the Job text and the Isaiah text. It's in poetry, and they're parallel. Parallelism isn't trying to tell... Generally, it'll let you know if it's a parallelism that contrasts. It's not. It's a parallelism that speaks of them as though they were the same. So if we're trying to make some huge difference, why does the psalm psalmist put them or Job put them in a way that actually says they're similar rather than that they're distinct? And then uh, flesh and spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. But here's, here's my, if I were going to go for my killer shot, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Remember where it talks about the Word of God and it's able to distinguish between soul and, and spirit? What he's saying is that distinction is so difficult to define and to discern that it's only something that God's Word can do. So why is it, folks, that we want to make such a big difference when we can't even figure it out? And I have yet to see anybody who has given a satisfactory, distinctive definition between soul and spirit. I just haven't. Uh, and so if you want to go down that trail, it, it certainly has a lot of people on it, but I think it misses the point of the passage. I would suggest to you that you look at the passage in a different way. And the key word is the word peace. May the God of peace, Paul says, 
make himself make you completely holy the god of peace now that's not an unusual expression but if you were to pick the hebrew word that is the equivalent it would be shalom and what does shalom mean first first one at least on my in my lexicon completeness completeness wholeness okay now Look at that in terms of the way in which this passage is laid out. And by the way, look at the parallelism that goes on between make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be entirely blameless. The word completely and the word entirely begin with the same Greek preface, uh, prefix. Get that right yet. Hollow. And, and, and so there's a deliberate word play that Paul is, is using here, and he puts those two words very close together. So what he's trying to do, I believe, is to show us that he's actually saying the same thing twice. So he starts by referring to the God of peace or the God of wholeness. Then he says, may he make you completely holy or uh, may he sanctify you completely. But you look at that word completely, and it really fits. It's parallel to peace or shalom. And then he says, may your spirit, soul, and body be kept entirely blameless. So it's that whole idea of of completeness, entirety, totality that he has in mind. And I would suggest to you then that what he's trying to do is this. He's taking every word... That, that would be commonly used for some dimension of man's being. And he's saying, when God makes you holy, he will make you holy in every single dimension of your life. I'll give you one step further. You, I haven't seen this in the commentary, so you probably better hang it out there on the exegetical limb far. I think he's using every known popular Greek description of some aspect of man's being. And what he's saying is, here is the way in which, as it were, the Greeks look at man. Here are the different dimensions that they would use of man. He lumps them all together because he's saying, do you get the point? I'm talking about God sanctifying every single aspect and dimension of your life. So he didn't care about distinguishing nice three nice, neat little categories. He's just bunching all of the categories together and saying, sanctification needs to include every part of you. Now, I don't want to get off and get too preachy at this point, but I'll, I'll say it. And that is, this is something that we fight in our, in our fleshly nature. This is something we resist. Basically, we want to be saved from hell. And we sure want to get to heaven. But we want to put little little stakes around certain dimensions of our lives and say to God, now, you, you can, you can, this room is yours. <laughs> and you can have this part of me. Reluctantly, but you can have it. Now, this part over here, we're not going to talk about quite yet. I think, I think most all of us have a dark corner or more in our lives to which we've said to God, stay out. And I think Paul is saying, when I pray, I'm not only praying that God's going to make you holy, I'm praying that he makes you holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, if I can spell, 
holy, H-O-L-Y. All together, holy in every aspect of your life. And that's why sanctification is a lifelong process. Notice now that we have a reference here uh, to the second coming. The eighth, if one of the commentaries was correct, I didn't count them, um, but his final reference to the second coming in First Thessalonians. Big point. It seems to me that it's very clear that when Paul talks about sanctification, he is talking about the preparation that we are undergoing for that great final day when our Lord Jesus Christ comes for us and the way in which we want to be found. So that salvation is the, is the starting gun, if you would. It puts us on that course, but all of our lives are lived out in a way that God is actively working to sanctify us with the goal being the end. And that is when we stand before Christ and and the goal is that we would stand before him uh, blameless. Notice too, the direct involvement of the Father. Now, maybe you don't see that there, but I guess I do. It says, may the God of peace himself. When you think about sanctification, which member of the Trinity do you usually think about? Right, me too. But he doesn't say that here. I think that in in the Greek mind, and I don't understand the Greek mind very well, so I'm, I'm conjecturing. In the Greek mind, I think that they saw, as most false religions do, they see their God as very distant not imminent, not close. And I think what he's saying is, your sanctification is God's project that he personally engages in and works in your life. He is not at a distance. He himself is seeking to sanctify you and make you holy. And then look in verse 24. I think now he's talking about the certainty of that. He who calls you... Oh, by the way, notice it's present tense, not past. It doesn't say he who called you. I think a lot of people think of their salvation in past tense terms. And I think what Paul is doing is describing the salvation in present tense terms. He is at work in your life. He who calls you is trustworthy and he will in fact do this. So we're talking about the sovereignty of God and the certainty of our sanctification being rooted in Him. Now, it's clear that we participate in the process, but it's clear who's the head of that process. And if we choose to go our own merry way, then God's sovereign, and He can deal with us any way He chooses to get us back on the proper path. But it's the same thing that Paul was saying in, in, in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians when he talks about there uh, that they were called and elect chosen by God he's emphasizing the fact that his certainty of the sanctification of these Thessalonian saints is because of who God is not because of his confidence in them per se but his confidence in God who is in them and who is at work uh, in them so that's the reason that Paul can pray as he does Why do you pray, Paul, for other people's sanctification? Because ultimately, God's doing it. Why do you pray for other people's salvation? Because ultimately, 
God does it. So the basis for Paul's prayer is God and his sovereignty. Now, I like verse 25, and it seems to me it still fits in the, in the sanctification sections. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Now, the Net Bible and one other translation includes the word to. Uh, it's the Holman Study uh, Bible that does that. To. The reason is because in some Greek manuscripts, the word and or also is there, and in others it isn't. I'm inclined to think it is. And I'm inclined to think that the reason why the word to is there is because Paul is not distinguishing himself or his associates from what he is saying in the first two verses. You know, there are some people that somehow they look at people in the front, uh, their leaders, and, and they think that somehow they don't have the same struggles. They don't have the same issues. That somehow they've kind of arrived. What Paul is saying in this text is, hey... I'm praying for you because you need it. And by the way, you pray for me and for my associates because we need it. Now, he doesn't say in this case, as he may somewhere else, he does not say there is this great danger we're facing or there's this great trial or there's this big problem. He doesn't give us a specific prayer request. He gives us a general one. And what does that say? It says to me, Paul needs God at every aspect of his life, just like every other saint. So there's a reciprocal dimension that is going on here. Pardon me, I call this the pucker up section of our text in verse 26. Greet all the brothers and sisters. Now, again, remember that the text literally says brethren, and you've got to decide whether it's male and female or not. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. All right, let me get the holy part of it (laughs) first. He's been talking about sanctification, folks. And this is not one of those, I'll dip you down, Hollywood kisses. This is a holy kiss. When I was uh, overseas in Asia, they have what I call the missed me kiss. <laughs> the missed me kiss is they go, and, and, and you end up saying, missed me, <laughs> because nobody hit anything. It's sort of an air kiss. You know, hey, folks, that's a holy kiss. So you got all kinds of ways in which I think you could kiss brothers and sisters in a holy way. Uh, And Paul is certainly making sure that it is that. This is a command. This is a command. And it is not just a command that we find here as one obscure uh, statement from Paul. He says it in 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, Romans 16, 16. And if that isn't enough, Peter gets in with him as well in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14 and calls it a kiss of love. They're commands. So how do we come to terms with these repeated commands in Scripture? I didn't really notice a whole lot of kissing, smooching going on uh, as we came in this morning. How do we deal with that? When Jesus says, teaching them to obey. Man, I'm not going to look the other way when you guys leave. But what, what, what are we doing that somehow in this particular repeated command where Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, how are we obeying this? Now, the question is, what 
what is its purpose? What is its goal? And I would suggest that there are several things that it does. One, it says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. When you look at at passages like James chapter 2 and whatever, you you see a, a segregated church where, you know, it says, you say to the poor guy, you sit here. So what if a homeless guy comes to the church at Thessalonica? Does he get a holy kiss? Or does he get the brush off? Well, Paul says he, he gets it like everybody else. Does he not? All the brothers. So it seems to me that one of the things this does is, said, is to say to Christians, you don't deal with people differently in the body of Jesus. You acknowledge everyone to have equal status and standing in Christ. Now, do they have different standings in the world? Of course they do. But the church isn't regulated by that. What's interesting to me is that one of the most popular principles of church growth today is homogeneous churches. Birds of a feather flock together. So, sure, it's the easiest thing. All the homeless guys, they get to kiss the homeless guys. And, and you know, the up and outers, now they, they, that's in a whole different thing. But it, that's not the way that I envision, and I think the way the Scriptures envision the New Testament church, where you have, you have Gentiles and, and, and Jews, you have rich and you have poor, slaves and free. You've got all this mix. And in our greetings together, we ought not to distinguish or differentiate anything in that greeting from one to the other because we are all equal standing in Christ. That's one of the ways that I understand it. The other is this. I think that the holy kiss was not just something that you did at church. I think it's something you did on the street when you met your brother or sister in public. Now, I don't know anything about gangs, but I know that gangs have signs, right? And, and as a rule, they're secret so that they may be sending signs to each other and I'm, I'm in my oblivious state of mind. I don't even know what's going on. This is not a gang sign. When you greet your brother and sister in public, you publicly identify yourself with, with them and you publicly, in a sense, distinguish yourself, yourselves from the world. So that when the world looked on at Thessalonica and they saw two Christians coming together, they're going to see a holy kiss. And they're going to say to themselves, those guys are together. And they're also going to realize they're not one of us in the sense of they're different and rightly so. So I see this as standing together with other believers, standing apart from the world in a way that identifies you as a Christian. Now, remember the church at Thessalonica is a persecuted church. I think it is absolutely critical in those times when when you face persecution, it's really easy to let another believer just go his way and you just sort of pretend like you didn't see him. That's not what the church is about. The church stands together in its tribulation and persecution. So, the big question... Should we pucker up? I would say this. I'm not opposed, and I don't think anybody would be opposed to holy kisses. 
If we, if we embraced one another in a way that was clearly not Hollywood, that clearly would not make a husband or a wife offended by the way we do it, that's, I think there are ways in which the world does that. We could, or some of you could. But I think the other thing is to say this. What Paul is really getting at is that Christians show the equality that they have in Christ and their identity and oneness in Him and their distinction from the world. That means that there may be other ways, other, a kiss is a symbol. There may be other symbols that reflect the same reality, but we better find one. We better find a symbol and we ought to be consistent with that in our own practice so that when people see us and they see us greet other believers, they say, those two are, they're partnered in some way. And they recognize that they stand, that we stand apart from the world. Well, I want you to think about that because I, I think that's really important. And again, Jesus said we're supposed to obey every command. I don't think we push some away and say, well, that's a tough one. And by the way, if this one's tough, folks... <laughs> I got a lot tougher ones for you than that. This is not hard at all. Okay. Now, verse 27. Read this letter to all the brethren. This is a fascinating verse. And I want you to notice, it is, this is the one I said. This is the most solemn command in this epistle. And it's one of the most solemn commands in all of the New Testament. Look at where or how it is translated in uh, various translations. New American Standard says, I adjure you by the Lord. That's not a very common usage, but you get the sense. It's intense. Then uh, Net Bible says, I call on you solemnly in the Lord. ESV says, I put you under oath before the Lord. That gives you a sense of the, of the intensity of it. And the Holman Standard uh, says, uh, I charge you by the Lord. Now, take a look with me at the texts in which this is used. Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. Jesus is coming in contact with the demons. And listen to what the verse says. Mark 5, 7. Then he cried out with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God. I implore you by God. Now, it's strange, is it not, that he's using the strongest possible language to get Jesus to leave him alone. But he's a demon, folks. <laughs> he wants to keep his distance from, from Jesus. Acts chapter 19, sort of the flip side of the coin. Acts 19.13 is the account of some Jewish itinerant exorcists who are not believers, but they are casting or attempting to cast out demons through the power of Jesus that Paul preaches. Uh, so Acts 19.13 reads this way. But some itinerant Jewish exorcist tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were possessed by evil spirits, saying, I sternly warn you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. My point is, these are the strongest words they could find. That ought to tell us something. And finally, Matthew 26 Verse 63. You remember Jesus has been, for, for the, for the uh, high priest and the opposition that wanted to kill him, Jesus has been strangely, puzzling, puzzlingly, disturbingly silent before his accusers. And finally the high priest 
in a moment of absolute frustration says, uh, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And to that, Jesus gives answer. Now, have I made my point? And that is, when Paul is telling the Thessalonians that this is to be read to all the brethren, do you get the sense that Paul is saying this with a high level of intensity? That's the way I I see it. Why? Well, A, the Gutenberg press has got a while before it's coming into existence. People did not go to church in Thessalonica with a Bible under their arm because they didn't have one. Now, you know that in the synagogues there were scrolls and there were manuscripts uh, that were available, but the only way people generally got Scripture was if the Scriptures were read publicly. The second part of that is illiteracy. There in those days and in those times, many people if they had the Bible in their hands, couldn't read it. Now, this is just an example from from, uh, recent days, but did you notice this past week on the news uh, talking about this, how they're training this crack Afghan, sort of the equivalent of uh, of a rangers group, that this crack group was out and and how great and how, how disciplined and whatever they were. They were out on a military exercise and there were people who were wounded and they were trying to call in medical assistance. And you know what? Nobody could read a map. They're trying to tell people how to get to them and they don't know how to read a map. Now, overlay that onto the scriptures. That's what I'm trying to say. If you have people who are illiterate How are they going to hear the Word of God other than it being read publicly to them? It's no wonder that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that he ought to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. I don't think we really can get our mental arms around what it is like to live in a society like that where the Scriptures were not that available and there weren't always that many people who could read them if they were. I mean, why learn to read, man? There are many books. So it's, it's, a, it's a frustrating thing. Now, what is the point of all that? What is Paul trying to say? Would you not agree with me that Paul thinks it's important for people to hear what he has written in 1 Thessalonians? Doesn't, doesn't that stand a reason? If he speaks that strongly, then this epistle must be so important that every believer in Thessalonica ought to have it read in his hearing. He ought to have that scripture, which leads me to a follow-up. What does it say to us? How important is the Word of God to us? If Paul has to use this strong an exhortation and command to see to it that his epistle is read to the Thessalonians, what do you think Paul would say to us? who have 10 or more translations, various copies of the Bible laying all over our house, in our palm device, on our computers, everywhere else. What do you think Paul would tell us to do with that word? And I got to tell you, friends, we have it available to us. But the question is, are we more into the scriptures than they were?
I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. This ought to be a strong instruction for the church today. Grace be with you. It almost sounds like grace to you, doesn't it? I think I've heard that expression before in verse 28. You know, the book started out with grace and peace, and it ends up with uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus being with you. I'm not sure. We sing about how sweet the sound of grace is to our ears. But, you know, for people who have come out of paganism, for people who have come out of a system, as virtually every unbeliever does, a system of works where it all depends upon me, it all depends upon my performance, do you understand how sweet the word grace is to them? And, you know, I, I remember preaching in the church and, and some lady said to me, Oh, I love it. It's all grace. She loved it because it was grace. We read this and, and, and I think we mentally brush it aside, say, ah, that's the way he starts every letter. That's the way he ends every letter. And, and, and there again, Sometimes in the reading of commentaries, we get this thing of, yeah, well, this is a standard form. This is just a boilerplate. It's almost like he's taken mail merge and his computer and he just crammed his stuff in, but he's got his little greeting at the beginning, that's standard form, a greeting at the end or, or, or sign off at the end, that's standard form. That's not the way these folks read it and that's not the way he wrote it. By the way, you'll notice in some instances when Paul ends an epistle, he'll say, do you notice with what large letters I'm writing? And it's as though he's grabbed the pen out of the amanuensis' hand and says, I want them to know this is from me. So his last words are often words that will underscore Paul's soul is in what he's saying. And it really is here. Okay. So let me just uh, just very briefly review some of the things that Paul is saying in this text, which are which are really summations of his emphasis on uh, the entire book of First Thessalonians. Sanctification. Would you not agree with me that the way the book began, and the way the book is in the middle, and the way the book is at the end, that Paul's great desire and ambition and goal is the sanctification of these saints. Why is Paul so distressed when he is separated from the Thessalonians and try as he may, he has not been able to return? Because he wants to know how they're doing. He wants to know, are they moving along in the sanctification process? All the way through this epistle, Paul is saying, my goal is to see you standing rightly with God when you stand before God at the second coming. So Paul sees that, that the second coming of Christ is the finish line and he's coaching us all the way down that, that run so that we will stand rightly with God. What are some of the major areas of sanctification? Well, in chapter 4, it would be sexual purity, would it not? And it would be a work ethic that is honoring to God. No sponging, but working hard uh, to be not dependent upon our brothers when it is in our ability to work. And, and then our looking for him, our readiness, our preparedness, our way of being alert, recognizing 
that the day of the Lord is at hand and he will be coming soon for us. Sovereignty. One of the things that Paul wants us to know very clearly is that sanctification is being done by a sovereign God. Yes, we are to be involved. Yes, we participate. But it is the God who sovereignly chose us and who sovereignly works in our lives, the one to whom Paul prays that we would be sanctified. That's the God who's in charge of all of this. And that's why it is certain, the end is certain, because the God who started us is the one who will bring us in completion at the, at the end. I say supplication. I'm sorry, I got stuck on the S's. I hate some of that alliteration stuff. But it's really prayer. It, it, there are prayers of thanksgiving and other things, but when you look in this text, it's Paul praying that God will do a wonderful work in the lives of the Thessalonians. And they're praying that God will continue to work in the lives of the apostles who go forth with the gospel. Our standing, and that's the the greet one another with a, a holy kiss. That is, we stand together as a body, and we stand apart from the world, and we somehow, in some symbolic way, make it clear to unbelievers that we are one in Christ, and we are distinct from the world. Second coming, it's all through this. Because, my friend, it's the finish line. Why would you talk about a race without constantly bringing the finish line in view? That's what Paul says. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are to fix our eyes on the goal, and that is to be ready at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Scripture. Boy, if that next to the last verse doesn't grab you uh, and say, you know what? I think Paul thinks I ought to be reading my Bible. We ought to be. And it ought to be as important to us as it was to him and his instructions. And finally, sustaining grace. When all is said and done, what will we say other than it was all of grace? It was all of grace. It's not our performance It's God's perfection and his persistence in making us what we ought to be. That's 1 Thessalonians. That's what it's all about. If you haven't trusted in him, I have to tell you, you need to start at the beginning of the race. And that's where you acknowledge your sin. You acknowledge that you cannot make it to heaven. You cannot find standing and acceptance with God because... You and I are all sinners. Jesus Christ stood in our place. He lived a perfect life, and he died a sacrifice for sinners. It's by trusting in him that the race begins, and it's by trusting and walking in him that the race continues. And it's coming to him that the race will end. I pray that you will trust in him. Father, we thank you for... This first epistle to the Thessalonians, pray that you would uh, burn it into our hearts. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.